You are listening to a podcast from Classic City Church. We're glad you've joined us. Our services are held at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 595 Prince Avenue in the Piedmont Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.classiccity.org. This is a sermon from Pastor Lee Mason. This morning we're going to land the plane. We have been, uh, for those of you that are visiting with us or have been kind of in and out, we've been going through the book of Romans or part of Romans, the back part of it, for 15 weeks. And this is the, the uh, last one. So we are squeezing every, every bit of juice out of this orange and uh, we're going to look at the last two verses today. But let me, uh, before we get into this passage, let me sort of catch you up and kind of contextualize what we're going to be talking about this morning. I think it really helps to understand what has been said real briefly. Um, As we talked about, the book of Romans was written by Paul. It was written in 58. He was writing to the church in Rome, and what had gone on there is during the reign of an emperor named Claudius, there was a lot of arguing going on between Jews that were Christians and Jews that weren't Christians over Christ. And so Claudius, the emperor, got tired of it and just expelled all the Jews from Rome. And so what had happened in the church in Rome that was started by Jews, it had a very Jewish culture and flavor to it, it was now being taken over by the Gentiles. They had to leave. They had to move it forward. And so what happened, they began to do their stuff and they began actually to reach out to their the other Gentiles and share the gospel. And many Gentiles came into the church. The church grew. It was doing well. But what they began to do is sort of shed some of the Jewishness of their church. They began to stop uh, doing kosher meals. They began to stop honoring the Sabbath. They began to stop honoring certain religious holidays. And so when the Jews came back after Claudius' death, and it was about four years later more than likely, they came back and they found a different church different leadership, and you could imagine a scenario like that happening, how difficult it would be for the Jews and the Gentiles part of this church to really reconnect, there'd be control issues, there'd be battles over, you know, what's right and what's wrong, and you could imagine them both using the Bible to kind of thump each other over the head trying to make their points, and so Paul is writing to them, and he's got a, he's got a couple purposes, one of course is to address this issue. And the way he does it is to do a very long, for him, elaborate understanding of the gospel. Then he goes in toward the latter part of this, and he does this for about eight chapters. And then he talks about God's purposes for three other chapters. And when he gets to chapter 12, he begins to address this issue. And he gets into what we call the nuts and bolts, kind of the practicals of living out your Christian life in what can be a very, very difficult context for a church. And so he begins to talk to them. He talks to them in verse 12 about the importance that their life be, he called it a living sacrifice. And he said, I want you guys to think of your life and your worship, not as just an activity you do during a few songs on Sunday morning, but I want worship in your mind to be the way you live your life, the way you do your job, the way you conduct yourself around your friends, the way you parent, the way you or receive parenting if you're a child, the way you do your classwork if you're a student. I want you to think of everything you do as worship, as glorifying God. And particularly, I want you to think about the way you relate to each other in the church, the way you handle church conflict, the way you handle challenges, as being worship. 
That's a really challenging thing to ask. Is hey, am I really worshiping God in the way I'm handling issues that arise between each other and issues that in conflict and controversy? And so he's he's doing that. And then he talks about uh, as you get into this letter, he talks about the importance of every member, just like every part of your body is important. Every member of the church is important. There's nobody who's there's no unimportant people, no little people, no big people. And he goes through that, and then he begins to really talk about love. He talks about how love must be sincere. He talks about how love is a fulfillment of the law. He talks about how love is, is really a nitty-gritty, it is a decision, it is not a feeling, and he, he really expounds on what love is. And then he gets into the issue that they were facing. Spends about a chapter and a half, from chapter 14 to half of chapter 15. He really talks particularly about their issues which dealt with diet and dealt with, with religious holidays. And then he begins to get into the second reason he wrote, which is he was in a city in Corinth at the time. He was going to go to Jerusalem to take an offering to the Jerusalem church. And then he wanted to go and do a mission thrust into Spain, which was the farthest uh, area of the Roman Empire to the west. So he wanted to, on his way to Spain, he wanted to come to Rome. And he wanted to preach there a little bit. He wanted to minister to them. He wanted to uh, raise support financially for his trip. And he wanted to see if maybe there'd be some guys or girls that want to go with him on this trip to go reach Spain and be a part of a missionary venture. So that's what he's writing about. So in this part of the book, as we get to the latter part, he focuses on this idea of a mission. And this last verse is just the way he's closing it out. And you want to read it with me. It's in, again, Romans 16, verse 25, 26, and 27. And here's what he writes. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith to the only Wise God, be glory forever in Jesus Christ. Now, what we call this, and what theologians call this last little phrase in this letter, and in, and in several of Paul's letters, and several letters in the Bible, they'll have something like this. We call it a doxology. And it just means a, it is a poem. It, is, it literally means to praise with thought. It means it is a poem. It is a uh, pithy kind of saying, but there is within this praise a clear thought that's being communicated. It's a doxology, it is a worship, it is a praise done with thought. There's something behind it. Now if we look at the book of Romans and how it began, we understand that this closing is almost identical to its opening. If you read the opening few verses, and we actually went through this passage on Easter Sunday, the way Paul opens Romans in chapter 1, verse 2, he talks about how the gospel was promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures. That the gospel was promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures. And then in verse 5, he talks about the resurrection for a few verses. And then in verse 5, he talks about how um, the Gentiles are coming to the obedience of faith. He says almost the identical language and wording here at the very close. And what this does when you have an inclusio in a document in a movie whatever it basically tells you that whatever happens at the beginning and whatever happens at the end is very important to what's going on uh, in the middle 
Very important. And so Paul is, is doing this and he's, he's basically wanting to, to focus on this idea, these two ideas. That the story, the historical story of Jesus, which they are very close to, they're ten years from it, that it happened just a few years earlier to them. That historical story was found in the Old Testament. The implications of it, the, 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 the facts of it, were found in the Old Testament. And he said that what else is happening now is something that the Old Testament said would happen, is that Gentiles are beginning, because of him, to serve the Lord, serve the God of Israel. That's beginning to happen. And so this is a big deal to him. Now, he talks here, and let's, look, let's just kind of look at this doxology, get a few, uh, kind of look at some of the things he says individually, and then look at what is the big point. What is the thought that's behind this worship? Um, verse 25, he says, God's able to establish you according to my gospel. Now, the word established there is a word used in construction. And the idea is that God is constructing something that is strong, permanent, and is not going to fade away, is not going to fall apart. This thing is strong. It is solid. And he's saying, I want to establish you. And what he literally is saying there, I want you to be attached to it. I want you to, to become a brick or a window or a door or whatever you are, a piece of carpet that is a part of this building, that is a part of this structure. Because this structure is permanent. This structure is going to last forever. And, and the way that I would say is that basically Paul is saying there are many narratives out there, many narratives that were going around in the Roman Empire. If you read about it, there was, there was great patriotic glow about the Roman Empire. It was a narrative they had. It was a wonderful thing. It was the greatest thing ever. And there was a wonderful narrative glow about Caesar and their leader. And that was just part of the Roman Empire. There was also uh, in the Roman Empire people who were sarcastic, who didn't like Rome, who thought it should be overthrown. And they, they were, there was also that narrative going on. There was all kind of narratives that, that were going on in their day, just like our day. There's many narratives you can attach yourself to. Emotionally and spiritually. You can attach your, your, your money and your time and your effort to. Many narratives. Young people that are graduating, when you go to work, you're going to work for a company, and they're going to tell you the narrative and the history of their company and tell you what you're being attached to, why this company is worth your commitment and your effort and your, your extra that they're going to hopefully require from you. In our country, there's all kinds of narratives. There are narratives about how great America is. There are narratives about how awful and terrible America is. There are narratives about the American dream. There are narratives about all kinds of things, and they're all wanting you to attach yourself to them. I'm going to be a brick in the pro-American narrative. I'm going to be a brick in the anti-American narrative that's going on. I'm going to be a brick in this, this narrative of America, or that narrative. I'm going to be, and, and they're all asking for your, for your commitment, your emotions, your buy-in. They want to indoctrinate you. They want you to believe in what's being said. There's other narratives going on there. Uh, but but there, this is what's going on. And what Paul is saying is, I want you to be established in this narrative. I want you to be established in it. And here's how he defines that narrative. One, he calls it his gospel. His gospel, the message he's been preaching. 
Again, if you read the opening chapter of Romans chapter 1, he really clarifies what his gospel is. In verse 16 and 17, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And here's how he, here's how he describes it. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to anyone who believes, Jew or Greek. He's saying this is it. It is God's power to salvage a life. It is God's power to salvage a soul. His very power. God acting through this message when it's believed to transform a life. To save it. To salvage it. To free it from moral chains. To free it from emotional chains and bondages. To make it what it should be. Salvage it. It is the power of God to do that. It doesn't matter who you are. He says back then, Jew or Greek, in our day it could be black or white, male or female, uh, intellectual or non-intellectual, whatever you are, whatever category of person you are, it is God's power to you to salvage your life. And then he goes on in the next verse and he says, because in the gospel, he says this, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now what does he mean by that? What does he mean that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed? What do, what do we mean by righteous? If I say Jason here is righteous, he questions me a little bit. I understand, I feel the same way. But what am I saying? You know what I'm saying about Jason is I'm saying if he says he's going to do something, he does it. He's a good person. He's a, he's a reliable person. It, 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 it was in the used in those days in those terms righteous was a covenant word it meant that if that guy's in a covenant with you he is going to come through he is going to do what he says he is a covenant keeper he's a man of his word he is a person of of high high integrity and what paul is saying is the gospel reveals the integrity it reveals the faithfulness it reveals the the high character of god what his soul is like because what happened in the gospel is God promised in the Old Testament over and over again to Israel amidst their failures, amidst their sins, amidst their brokenness. He promised them, one day I am going to forgive you in a way that is extraordinary. I am going to forgive you. I am going to wipe your sins out. I'm going to make you clean, Ezekiel said, and you will be clean. He says, I'm going to remove your sin. I am going to take it away. And he talked about it in stories. He talked about it in promises that one day their sin would no longer be an issue. It would no longer be a barrier between them and Him. It would no longer do it. And God was faithful to His promise. He actually became human in, as, and through Jesus of Nazareth to make that promise came true. He went to a cross. He spilled His blood. He suffered humanity. He suffered rejection. He suffered an incredible torture and pain on a cross to make His Word good. And he says the Gospel reveals the kind of character God has. That's the kind of character He has. If He says He's going to do something, He'll do it no matter what it costs Him. He is, a, he is a being of His Word. He keeps it. He's honest. He is absolutely full of unquestionable integrity. So Paul says, this is my gospel. And he, he begins to really elaborate it even more. Because not only is the gospel uh, uh, the, the re revelation of God's character, but he goes on and he says, 
the gospel uh, is the message I proclaim to you about Jesus Christ, particularly in keeping with the revelation of the mystery he said was hidden for ages past, but is now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings through Jesus Christ. Now, now what does he mean by that? He basically is saying this, is the gospel the story and the history of Jesus and the significance of his life and his death and his resurrection are found hidden in the Old Testament. They're found hidden in the Old Testament. And you can peruse the Old Testament and you will find it filled with illusions and allegories and foreshadowings of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. Let me give you literally just a small few of them. When the story of the fall happens, in Genesis chapter 3, everybody here familiar with that story? Genesis chapter 3, we have the story of the fall. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. When they did, they found out they were naked, which is, in, which is a uh, way of communicating particularly that they were ashamed. They're filled with shame. They're filled with guilt. They were naked. And they ran and they hid from God. God comes out and he's like gathers them together and he basically says, hey, who told you this was going on? And he basically judges them for their sin. Exactly what he said he would do, he does. He judges their sin. And then as they leave, Adam and Eve do something. They, they take fig leaves, which are just leaves that were grown on a fig, and they sewed them together and they covered themselves. They covered their bodies up as best they could. They covered their nakedness, their shame, their guilt with fig leaves. Now, how many would go out in public with a covering of fig leaves? It's not a great covering, is it? Not very effective. It's, it's like a bad dream you have. You know, like somewhere in public and I have fig leaves on. You know, you're like, you know it's, it's not a great thing. And, and so as they're leaving, the very end of Genesis chapter 3, very end, there's this one verse. It says something seems oh so slight, so innocuous. It's very powerful. The Bible says as Adam and Eve are leaving, it says the Lord God made skins to cover their shame. The Lord made skins. And so we have a contrast here. These guys are doing works, they're doing good deeds, they're kind of virtue signaling. Hey, I'm not that bad a person. I'm really one of the good people. And they're doing all this stuff and it's futile, and it's silly. There's still the same sinful mess before a holy God. And God says, you know what? I'm going to do this myself. I'm going to it's my responsibility to cover your sin. And he slays an animal, spills its blood, and he covers them adequately and completely. In that, he foreshadows the gospel. You go on in the Bible, and in a few chapters later, you read the story of Abraham. And Abraham is with God and he has this great promise from God that you're going to be a great nation. And he's always like worried like, hey, how's God going to come through? How can I be certain? How can I trust God? And God says, okay, let me do something for you. And he did something that in the ancient Near East 4,000 years ago was a, would have been very powerful. He tells him, you can read about it in Genesis 15. He tells him to make a, what they would call a suzerain vassal covenant uh, ceremony. He would take animals and he split them in half. And there's this bloody path in between. And what would happen in those days is two parties would walk between those bloodied, those bloodied animals, the path of blood that was between them. And basically what you were saying to each other is, this is my covenant with you. If I break this covenant, 
I will, what's done to these animals will be done to me. I am swearing on my blood, on my life. I will do what I say. I will be faithful to this covenant. So that's the agreement he's going to make with God. But as he's waiting for God, something odd happens. Abraham falls asleep into a deep sleep. And he has this awful dream. And in this dream, it's dark and mysterious, lots going on. But then he sees this path of blood that he just has, has been made by these animal sacrifices he had done. And in that path, there is a torch and a pot, smoking pot and a flaming torch that are moving through these things. And it's like, it's like these, and it was a theophany. It was like God making a covenant with God. God basically saying to himself, while Abraham is no more involved with it, he's saying, you know what? I will take, if that guy breaks this covenant, I'll pay for it. I'll be judged in his place. And he sees that happening. We go later in Abraham's life and he's asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. He takes him up to a mountain. There the boy on the way up says, hey, I I see the wood, I see the... He says, where's the sacrifice? Where's the lamb? And Abraham says something to him amazing. He says, God will provide the lamb. God's going to provide the lamb. They get to the top of the mountain. Abraham prepares to actually sacrifice his own son. And God interrupts him and there is a lamb provided as a substitute. He slays that lamb as an offering in his place. And he names the place Yahweh Yireh. Which means the Lord will provide. And it says that on this spot, in this way, on a mountain, God will make a provision that will be memorable. This event is a foreshadowing of something that will come in the future. A provision just like this in the future. A son being offered as a sacrifice and his blood spilled to remove sin. As we keep going through the story of the Bible, I could go on and on. You go through Moses' story. There's there's a time when he goes to a place called, they named the place Mirabah, which means lawsuit. And what had happened there is Israel had traveled to this place. There was no water. They started wanting to bring a a lawsuit against God and accuse Him of not being faithful. And Moses is freaking out. Oh my gosh, God's going to kill us. And God says, no, no, what I'm going to do, I'm going to stand on this stone, which is kind of like where the the dock where the accused would stand during a court trial. I'm going to stand on that stone. And when I do, I want you to strike it and pronounce guilt on me. And Moses is going, Oh, heck no. You're going to kill us if I do that. But he does it. And once something wild happens, when he strikes that rock, water bursts forth. And brought salvation. In fact, they, 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 the Jewish people never understood that. You could read the rabbis, throughout the ancient rabbis, never understood that story. But they talked about the wells of salvation. What on earth? How does striking God bring salvation couldn't get it couldn't get it he goes to the book of numbers chapter 2 israel's journeying from egypt to the promised land it's a 40-year journey whenever israel stopped they had to form their they would sort of camp in a certain way of course they had 12 tribes and they would camp and it was very direct They're at the center of their camp was a tabernacle. It was like a big, huge tent. Actually, they were a mobile church, praise the Lord. They were able to move around, you know, 
and they had a mo- they literally had a mobile church there, and it was it was a and it was a tabernacle, and, and God would meet with them, and they'd worship there, and it was in the very center of their of their community, and to the east of the community were the three largest tribes: the tribes of Judah, the tribes of Issachar, and the tribes of Zebulon. They were to the east, so the sun rose on these that tribe, those three tribes. There was one hundred eighty-six thousand of them. They were all lined up on the east of this central worship area. There was two, uh, three, excuse me, three tribes to this direction, three tribes to the north and the south on each side. Uh, they're both about the same number. One was 151,000 altogether. One was 157,000 altogether. Three tribes. The, three, uh, the six middle tribes were lined up. And then to the west were the three smallest tribes. There was about 109,000 of those. They were all lined up there. And if you could get at a bird's eye view and look at this formation, you know what you would see the shape of? A cross. Literally, the sun would rise at the base of it, and it would go to the top. Every day, you would see a cross. This is how, for 40 years, Israel camped every day. There's no such thing as a cross. You continue on in the Bible. And I, could, I could do several more of these, but it's amazing. Job in Job chapter 9, verses 33 and 34. You know what Job cried out for? He said, oh God, I wish there was a mediator. I wish there was a mediator that could bridge the gap between God and me and take his rod, his judgment away from me. I wish there was a mediator. I wish somebody could join God and I together and he would do it by taking away the punishment for my sins. You continue on and you read the prophets. You could read Psalm 22. depicts the crucifixion of Jesus. It talks about a, a man whose hands and feet are pierced, whose garments are being gambled for, who, who going through everything Christ went through on the cross. talks about how eventually he will see the light of life, though, and the nations will come to him. Read Psalm 22. Read Isaiah 53. You'll see a depiction of Christ being crucified, of him bearing the sins of humanity. You go through the minor prophets, every single one of them, over and over again, foreshadow it. In Zechariah chapter 3, there's a story of this priest named Joshua. And he's standing before God in these dirty clothes. And Satan is there accusing him of being filthy and dirty. You ever had that experience? Of being dirty, of being filthy, of being unworthy. And basically saying, God, how can you bless him? God, how can you keep him around here? How can you not judge him? And God does something. He takes the garments the dirty garments off of Joshua, and he puts him in glistening, bright white ones. And he tells him, this is symbolic of what I'm going to do in one day that is coming. There is a day that is coming where once and for all, I am going to take the filth and remove it from my people, from humanity, and I am going to clothe them in glistening white garments. I am going to remove their sin in one day, once and for all, forever. And we understand that is what God did in, as, and through Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, I could tell you dozens and dozens, literally dozens of more times in the Old Testament where the story of Christ is hidden in there in profound ways, in powerful ways. So many dimensions of it, so many of the aspects of it are hidden in there. And Paul is a Jew. He is a Pharisee. He literally, in his training, he went to the Harvard of rabbinical schools. He sat under a guy named Gamal, or the Princeton, excuse me. 
of divinity schools. Some of you will get that one. He, he went there. He, they, he literally knew the Bible word for word. He memorized it. Knew every word of the Old Testament. He could memorize it. And he goes, man, I see the, this, his, the, what just happened. A few years ago, in Jesus Christ is in this story. It is amazing. In the brokenness, in Israel's brokenness, in their failure, in all the, the mess of their, their, their history, God wrote a story in there. Of what he was going to do through, through his son to bring about salvation to the world and spread that to the Gentiles. And Paul's saying, man, we're seeing that happen right now. It is happening right before our eyes. And he goes on here. And he continues. When we get to the last little verse here, it says, If it is revealed, made known, that it leads to the Gentiles becoming to the obedience of faith. Back in those days, it was just beginning to happen. And that Roman church was a church that actually started out Jewish that now had more Gentiles. You look at Christianity today, it is amazing. It is covered in Gentiles all over the place, every nation, every country, everywhere. There are people that are worshiping God, non-Jewish, that are worshiping the God of Israel through Jesus Christ. It is an amazing thing. It's powerful and profound. And then he goes on here and he closes with this thing. He talks about the commands of the eternal God. And in verse 27, he talks about to the only wise God be glory and honor through Jesus Christ. What's he saying there? What is this doxology saying? Well, in this doxology... Paul is admiring something about God. He's decorating this, bringing it to life with the words around it. And here's what he sees. He sees a brilliant writer. And he sees absolute sovereignty in his story. Maya and Lisa's, our favorite actor, is Denzel Washington. No Denzel fans here? I thought I'd feel a little, little love for Denzel. Maybe I'm too, maybe he's too old now. I don't know. We just loved it. We go to every movie. If it's a Denzel movie out, we're going on Friday night, back when you could go on Friday nights to movies. And uh, we'll, we'll continue that tradition once this pandemic's completely done, thank God. Um, but we, 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 we go to every Denzel movie. We go, we go to every one of them. We like them. And there was one that he did called Training Day. And actually, it's kind of an interesting movie because... Denzel's always the good guy in the movie. In this movie, he was the bad guy. And he was a very bad guy. And he was such a good job of being a bad guy that he won the Academy Award. For the, he won the Oscar for Best Actor. Uh, it was this show that used to be on called The Oscars People Used to Watch. You <laughs> tell you about it sometime, young people. Anyways, uh, th but he won that. And, um, and so what happened um, in this story, it's really interesting. If you watch a story of, 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 of um, yeah, thank you, Training Day, thank you. I knew somebody get it out there. Training Day. Denzel plays this bad cop, and he has this rookie cop with him named Hoyt, and he kind of is trying to corrupt this cop, or he's going to use this, you know, it's just, he's just got bad intentions here all, all the way. And so they're driving along on their first day, and this kind of weird thing happens as they're just developing the characters early in the movie. There's this girl being attacked by these two terrible drug addicts in an alley. And he, the officer just glances and sees it. And he tells him, stop, stop. He makes him stop. He gets out. He runs over there. 
He beats up both of these drug addicts, saves the girl, you know, and, and she, she runs off to school. Then they kind of deal with the drug addicts. And, and as they're leaving, this young rookie cop, Hoyt, this kind of good guy, looks down and he sees that this girl who had been attacked left her wallet. And so he picks it up. And he puts it in his pocket and says, well, well, we'll get it to her. You know, he's going to do it later at the end of the day. Well, he goes to his day. And it's just kind of something you forget as the movie goes on. You just forget about it. It's just kind of this incidental thing. And then it comes up and there's this scene where later on, Denzel Washington frames this cop and he basically is leaving him in the, at the mercy of these notorious gang leaders and they're going to kill him. And they hold him out over a tub. I hope this isn't too much for the kids. They hold him over a tub. They have a shotgun to him. And they're going to, well, before we kill him, must get his money. So they get his money. They pull this wallet out. And they open it up and they're like, the guy who literally is going to shoot him, he goes, hey, this is your cousin, isn't it? And he goes, what? And he starts looking. And he goes, what? And he starts doing it. He calls her up and she tells him how he saved her life. And he goes, I can't kill this guy. And so it's, and then he ends up going out and he, he gets Denzel. He goes, hunts him down. But here's the thing I want to say. When you're, when you're watching the movie, and those of you that have know this, you're watching the movie, and, and those of you that watch it now, well, it'll, I'll just spoil it, but it's okay. <laughs> it's price of admission. Um, but what happens is something that is like really incidental that you just forget about. Like, what's this odd, okay, God makes covering for Adam and Eve. What's this formation in the wilderness? What's this story about Moses striking a rock? What's this, you know, what's this odd poem in Psalm 22? What's he even talking? You, you have this, you have these sort of incidental, seemingly forgettable thing that becomes the absolute crucial moment in the movie. And what that tells you is this. There is a sovereign writer over that movie. That movie is not just controlled by the characters in it. There is a writer, there is an author who, is at, who has absolute sovereignty over what's going on. And this incidental thing wasn't just a, just a dumb thing in the movie. It was, it was inserted in there by a sovereign writer who wanted that to become the point. And this is what we see in the, in the, the broken history of Israel. Their mess of a, of, of a time they had in the Old Testament. In that broken history, we see, no, 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 no. The real point are these little odd incidences here. That's the real point. There is a sovereign writer writing a story through the history of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying to them is, is this is the narrative I hope you attach yourself to. God is able to establish you. God is able to attach you. God is able to mold you into this story that is not going away. This is more permanent than whatever your political beliefs are. Whatever your passions are. Whatever your odd sort of quirky things that are competing with Christ. He's saying, listen, I hope God establishes you. Makes this the main thing in your life. Makes this the building the brick of you attaches to. No other narrative. Let that be it. And here's what he admires about God. 
in this doxology. He is the eternal God. The gospel, these are eternal commands from a sovereign God. And he calls him the only wise God. And Paul is looking at the story of Christ as a Jew who knows the Old Testament, who knew the history of his people. And he's saying, there is a brilliance here. There's a sovereignty displayed here that compels me to attach. Compels me to cleave to it. And have faith in it. Believe it and trust it. Pay whatever price it may have to pay to hold on to it in an authentic and a genuine way. And this is what he's challenging us to do. Get this to realize this about you and I, that like Israel, we have a broken history. We have a messy history. We have a history of failure, of sin, of depravity. But within that history, God wants to attach the history of His Son and attach you to what He's doing and do something wonderful through you because you're attached to something that is wonderful beyond words. It is the work of a God who is absolutely sovereign and utterly brilliant. I want to encourage you. Attach yourself to Him. Attach your emotions. Attach your commitment. Attach your time, your passions to that narrative. None other. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the awesome power of Your Word as it articulates the plan of salvation that You worked out, that You disclosed in this incredible, mysterious, brilliant way through many authors over literally thousands of years in many different historical contexts speaking to many different situations. You did it in poetry. You did it in narrative. You did it in rituals. You you did it in so many different ways, portraying the history of your son, the moment when everything would change. And we pray that we would, like Paul, and like like Paul's urging, we would worship. We uh, We would worship not only just in our emotions, just be in awe of your sovereignty, in awe of your brilliance, but we'd worship with our lives and we would attach ourselves to this narrative, to, this, to what you're doing, to the structure you're building and disregard any other competitor. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Classic City Church. We hope that together we can honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in His purposes. For more information or more sermons from Classic City Church, please visit www.classiccity.org.